0: Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. I'm sitting in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And as usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan. And as usual, good evening to those who might be listening to the program. We are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening In order to join us here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and I mean it when I say the word join, this is a live interactive call-in program, and so you have every opportunity to call in with your question, WhatsApp, or text your question. Maybe it's a topic that you would like discussed here on That's Truth. We are always open to your suggestions. We want this program to be as practical as possible. The goal of this program is to answer your questions about life, your questions about the Bible, using the Bible, using a biblical worldview to answer your questions.
1: Pastor, do you believe that the Bible has the
0: answer for every question that
1: we may have? I not only believe that, I think it's it's actually taught in the Bible. It says, uh, uh, Peter said that God has given to us all that pertain to life and godliness. So all that we need to function within God our generation within life the the Bible has answers and anything that relates to, to God uh, they're biblical answer. So both in our vertical and our horizontal life um, the Bible provides answers if you read uh, John MacArthur's book I was reading recently called The Sufficiency of Christ uh, you'll see what a marvelous provision God has made for us in Christ Jesus he's all sufficient so we don't need to go outside scripture to uh, have our needs met uh, the Bible is totally adequate So you heard Pastor. He believes the Bible
0: has the answers to all of your questions in life. So that is an open invitation to send in your questions, call in with your questions. Now, Pastor, as we jump into the program tonight, we have a lot of questions. We have one that carried over from last week, maybe a couple that carried over from last week, and then some that have come in during the week since the last episode, last Tuesday evening. So we're going to jump back to the question that you very briefly answered, but you wanted to uh, study it out and answer in more depth tonight. And the question was, good night, Pastor Murphy. Please explain the following. What is the reign of the Holy Spirit, Rain being R-A-I-N, What is the rain of the Holy Spirit? What is the former rain? And what is the latter rain? What is the early rain? Thanks. And the verse being discussed is Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause it to come down for you, the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain, in the first month.
1: What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, I was um, kind of awestruck by what the person was suggesting. Um, I see no connection between the use of rain in this passage and the Holy Spirit. But I do know it has been abused by uh, Pentecostals, claiming that um, they are going to enjoy the, the latter rain. We've had the f- former rain, now we have the latter rain. But if you read the text carefully, uh, and again, the only proper way to understand a biblical passage is to see the context of the passage. And so the best thing to do is to read the passage before and the passage after. And when you do that, you discover that um, this chapter is divided into four main divisions. In verses 1 to 14, the Lord talks about coming judgment. The There's another army that he's going to bring against Israel. In verses uh, 15 to 17, um, the prophet talks about the need for repentance, and he calls them to exhort them to... To prayer and intercession. Uh, in verses 18 to 27, there's a promise of deliverance. Were you to repent, there'll be deliverance. And then in verses uh, 28 to 32, there's a promise uh, that the Holy Spirit will be given in the last days. Those are four major divisions of this passage. Now, if you take the passage she's talking about, the first number, uh, uh, verse number 23, if you look at that very, very carefully, If you look at what comes before and what comes after, uh, you can see very clearly that um, in verse number 18, for example, the Lord responds uh, with zeal and pity towards his people. Uh, In verse 19, uh, God will provide material needs of his people. He'll bring the oil, the wine, and the grain. And then in verse number 20, God will defeat the northern army. And then in verse 21, he details the blessings that God is going to bring. Because in verse number 19, he tells you oil, wine, and grain. Then from verse number 21 to verse 24, he explains and elaborates on that part of it. How do we get the the rain? How do we get the oil? How do we get the the grain? Uh, He said the land is going to rejoice. Beasts are not going to fear. Uh, The field and the pasture are going to be turned green. Trees will bear fruit and the vine will yield its full fruit. And then he says he will give you the early rain and he will give you the latter rain. And then in verse twenty five he we said, "Will compensate for the lost years uh, that they failed. He gave back the years. your locusts eaten up. Then he thought plenty and satisfied. They be satisfied in verse twenty six. Now the former rain and the um, latter rain really are the two periods of rain in Israel. Uh, the former rain is the comes from October to um, uh, mid October to mid December, and then the latter rain comes from March uh, and April." So all the Lord is saying here that He's going to bring uh, favorable weather, but Israel, so that He fulfills His promises of oil, wine, and grain. There's no connection here whatsoever with the Holy Spirit. You know that as well. If you look at what follows, verse twenty, uh, verse twenty-three. Uh, if you go back to chapter two and verse twenty-three, it says, uh, "Be glad, then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He have given you the former rain moderately, and He will cause to uh, come down." Uh, for you the rain the former rain the latter rain in the first month and then verse 24 and the floors shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and he will restore to you the years of look so there's a there's no connection here whatsoever with uh, uh, the holy spirit there's just the promise of good weather fair weather allowing god to bring blessing upon the land of israel remember that Israel was an agrarian society uh, it's not a technological society or a manufacturing society. Basically, it was an agricultural society. So uh, in blessing them um, that will come, uh, their blessing was dependent on the productivity of the land. And he's saying, I'm going to make sure you get not only the farmer the rain, which comes in the first time and then the mm-hmm. sec- second time, but you'll get good weather. And I will not withhold the weather so you go to a drought so there's no connection here between so I'm a little bit puzzled why the person would suggest that this rain has to do with the Holy Spirit. Because if you read what comes before and what comes after, it explains the context of what he's talking about. So he's talking about giving favorable weather. Um it does mention in the last part verse um uh the last part of the text, uh it does talk about the uh, Holy Spirit will be um
0: starting in verse twenty eight. Uh, the my Bible has the, the headline: The Bible will pour out His Holy Spirit or His Spirit.
1: Right, right. and then remember in Acts chapter two, Peter alludes to this and talks about and uh, the Lord had promised in the last is the pour of His Spirit. Yeah. But the rain uh, is, is completely disconnected between uh, this and the, the the Holy Spirit. So I'm not too sure why, but I I know one thing. Uh, Narrative preachers uh, who do not do proper exposition of scripture uh, always tend to allegorize scripture, and I think that's what's happened here. They've taken the word rain and uh, they're talking about the, the, they're going to get blessing in the last days, so they're equating the latter rain with somehow the Holy Spirit coming in an unusual power and force. But if you read the context of the passage, it has nothing at all to do with the Holy Spirit. it has to do with God giving Israel the proper weather. Uh, so that they can enjoy the benefits that he had promised to them in verse 19.
0: Pastor, we have a phone call, I believe, from Virgin Gorda. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, I
2: wanted to explain 1
1: Corinthians 15, verse 50. 1
0: okay. Corinthians 15 what? Yeah. 1 Corinthians
1: fifteen fifty. 50? Yeah. All right. Let me see if I
0: can. All right, would you like to stay on the line while we explain that? Yes. Okay. All um, right. Let me pull it up and I will read it. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and verse number fifty says, yeah. "Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God; neither doth corruption inherit incorruption.
1: Well, mm-hmm. I think that is pretty pretty plain. Yeah. No human being. Yeah, I'm explaining it to you just a moment. You remember when our Lord was resurrected? And uh, yeah. he appeared, and they saw him, and uh, he, he told him that uh, he was had bone and, f- and flesh, but he, he talked about the matter here that in this particular passage, no human being in their unglorified form can inherit the kingdom of God. The whole human being has okay. to be changed. So that is why we have to have a new nature. We're going to be transformed and changed like unto Christ. But no human being in his flesh and his blood can, can inherit the kingdom of god There's a different realm altogether mm-hmm. um but this so, so it's it's here making it very clear that there need to be a change if you go into chapter chapter 9 uh, 15 you're talking about it has to do with the resurrection chapter mm-hmm. and and that is Paul's whole argument that we need resurrection we need transformation because we cannot mm-hmm. inherit the kingdom of god as we are in our flesh and blood
2: mm-hmm. okay Thanks a lot. eh?
1: You're welcome, sir.
0: Thank you very much for your call. We appreciate you listening.
2: You must must, uh, pray for me. I need your prayer very much. All right. We
0: will will be praying for you.
2: Yeah, pray for me. I need it very much. Thank you. The Lord will grant me health and
1: strength. Okay, sir. All
0: right. Thank you very much for listening from Virgin Gorda. Thank you for the call. And the phone line is now available again. So if you have a question and you would like to call, you can call 1-268-782-1454. If you've just tuned into the program and you're saying, I don't know if I want to get on the air. I don't want to be put in a situation where I'm going to be argued with. Our goal is not to argue. Our goal is not to belittle. Our goal is to answer your questions from scripture. So... We make a commitment to you that uh, if you have a sincere question, we will answer your question in a non-argumentative way. Thank you for listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 7.43. If you are listening to this on Saturday, it is a rebroadcast of the program, but you can join us next Tuesday for a live episode of That's Truth. Pastor Murphy, uh, anything else you wanted to mention about Joel chapter 2, verse no, 23?
1: No, I just think that people need to understand that there's a proper way to interpret Scripture. Uh, and it's something called hermeneutics, where there are principles that need to be applied to Scripture to be a proper understanding of Scripture. And the key to interpreting any passage is the context. Look at what comes before the text. And then read what comes after. If it is sandwiched in between those two things, you can pretty much have an idea what it's talking about. Because um, what's, imp- what's important after the verse 23, uh, if you were to read verse 24, uh, Brother Nathan, um, in chapter 2, of Michael, uh, Joel.
0: Yeah, it says, And the floors shall be full of wheat, and fats shall overflow with wine and oil.
1: It's so obvious. I mean, he's bringing the rain because he had promised in verse 19 and he get the oily fat, whatever it is. Now he explains what this entails. You can't have that without having rain because the whole society is dependent on agriculture. And then verse 24 explains as a result of the rain, this is what's going to happen. So uh, it's pretty straightforward that it has no relevance whatsoever to do with the Holy Spirit, and it's just the allegorizing of the passage that really is used uh, in a distorted way by those who uh, are pretty much, as I, I've used the word, narrative preachers who like to um, use their imagination and create their own um, teaching without any bearing at all upon what the passage is actually teaching.
0: Pastor Murphy, we have a caller from St. Kitts. Go ahead with your question, please, and thank you for calling.
2: Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, sir. I um, hope that I'm not misquoting you, but I think I understood one evening you said uh, there's plurality in the Godhead. But um, I don't know if I quote you wrong. Uh,
1: no, what I was. Um, let me explain. Okay, go ahead, I'm listening. Go ahead.
2: Yes. So, well, if Jesus Christ is our Savior, Lord, Redeemer, and Lord, and there is only one God, one Redeemer, one Lord, uh-huh. I would like you to read Isaiah 43 10 and 11, 44 and 6.
1: Okay. May and please, s- go ahead.
2: Ex- explain to me dear, where. Jesus Christ comes in.
1: Okay.
0: All right. Would you like to stay on the line? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11 read as follows. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me... There was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And then I will read chapter...
2: 44, 44, 6. 6.
0: All right, and that says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God.
1: Yeah. Well, look, if you take uh, Isaiah chapter 43 first of all the Lord is speaking to Israel uh, in verse number one he said then speaking to Jacob and of course Jacob uh, was name was changed to Israel in verse one he said he created and formed the nation of Israel in verse uh, one he also said he had redeemed the nation of Israel uh, verse two he said he would protect them from the water and the fire and the river if they go to the fire in verse 4 verse 3 he said he he's going to rescue them. And of course, this has to do with his deliverance from the Babylonians and the Chaldeans and the Medo-Persian Empire. In verse 4, he says he loved Israel. In verse 5 and 6, he says he will restore Israel to the land from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. And then in verse number 7, he says he's created Israel for his glory. Uh, Verse 8 and 9, God challenges the world to argue with him uh among the nations to and, and he has predicted that um israel is going to be delivered and of course the one he's going to use to deliver israel is cyrus to deliver israel and he said you know uh, which among the nations can predict things like i have predicted uh bring all your arguments uh, and see who is real the real god who can do predictions and then in verse number 16 uh, verse number 10 he calls Israel to be his witness. That's why he called the nation of Israel in the first place was to be a witness to the Gentiles, so the Gentiles to be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. And um, so, uh, this is really God speaking to the nation of Israel. And um, there's no dispute that there is one God. Um, the verse 46 that you you mentioned, uh, I'm the first and last. If you go to Roman if you go to Revelation chapter. Um, One, you see, yeah, yeah, 44 44, verse 6. We did again, we did
0: again. Yeah, sorry, I was headed to Revelation. Let me get back to Isaiah
1: 44 44, verse 6. All
0: right, Isaiah 44 and verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Right, If,
1: if you go to, um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. You'll see that Christ makes the same claim in that passage. Verse 8 and verse number 11. All
0: right. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And
1: then verse 11.
0: Saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna, and a list of the churches there
1: and you've discovered if you follow the other verses when John looked to see who it was speaking, he saw it was Jesus in a glorified form uh, so clearly Christ is claiming the same title that is given that Jehovah gives um, or Yahweh, uh, whichever term you want to use gives in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 6. Um, what, we, what I was trying to point out and is this the Bible makes it very clear that it's one God. Uh, But the Bible also makes it clear as it progressively unfolds that within this divine nature, this godhood, uh, what is called the Godhead, there are three distinct persons that are given the same title as God. Um, If you read Philippians chapter 2, you'll find that Jesus Christ is said to have equality with God. Uh, if you read John chapter 1, you see that Christ is said to be the Word, and the Word was God. And it doesn't mean that he's the Father. That's why they didn't use the the definite article. There's an author's a noun that they don't use. The In other words, when you don't have the definite article, the emphasis there is on the nature or the substance. Christ is of the same substance, the same nature as the Father. So that is where what we're trying to point out is that starting from Genesis chapter 1 and running through the Bible— there's a progressive revelation that this one God is manifested in three persons. Now, we can't... Let, let me just put it this way. We can't wrap our minds around that. I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's not something that we invented. It is something that's revealed in Scripture. How that works, I can't tell you. I just don't know. To t- All I'm telling you, God has revealed himself in three persons. In, in, in uh, Acts chapter 5... Uh, when he said you must not, Ananias uh, and essence, Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit. Oh. He said you have not lied to man; you have lied to God. That's a title that is used. Yes. And then, oh, yes. if you if you take uh, let me explain. If you take the three persons of the Trinity, and you would examine the Son and the attribute of the Son, and ex- examine the attributes of the Spirit, you will see that they share the same attributes that God the Father shares god is omnipotent i can show you from the bible that jesus christ is omnipotent the holy spirit is omnipotent god the father created i can assure you the son created i can show the spirit created so there are three within the godhead that works and everything that one does the other virtually does now that is something that's revealed that's not something that we can by reason understand and comprehend i i can't fathom it myself because there's nothing in the universe or nothing on planet earth that exactly parallels this. And this is what makes it so, uh, when you put it this way, to me it is marvelous that we have nothing to compare because we can't compare God with anything. Our reason can never comprehend God. And if for no other reason, this is why I find the Trinity profound, that we can't understand it, we can never wrap our mind around it because he's like nothing we know and we can imagine. But what has happened with people is they try to grasp God with their intellect. And what the intellect can't comprehend, they're willing to abandon and jettison. I can't do that. Because it's not my intellect that guides me, it's what God has revealed in His Word. Now, whether I understand how He did it or didn't do it, that's not the issue. My issue is by faith I accept what the Bible teaches. I see nothing in the Bible that's contradictory to human reasoning. It's beyond human reasoning. And all the Bible prophecies that have been fulfilled, nobody can dispute that. So this book is a marvelous book. So we can't accept one thing and, uh, and, and reject the other. We try to comprehend what this means. We, we can't put uh, God in a box and say, if God has revealed something, whether we understand it or not, we accept it because it is something he's revealed to us. We don't have to grasp it with our mind, everything with our mind, because if we did, we'd bring God down to a level. And God is infinite. How can a finite being comprehend an infinite God? So when it comes to the the whole matter of the revelation of who God is, it is very, very clear it is one God. But that one God, by the way, the word that is used there for one God is the same word that is used in connection with when it said the two shall become one, husband and wife. They're two separate individuals. But there's a a unity. There's not a a unit there. There's a unity there that they act as one. And that's where when it comes to the, the, the matter of the Trinity, we believe from the beginning Beginning with Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 The word is Elohim If you could take your Strong's concordance Or check any Greek, uh, Hebrew lexicon you see that it's a plural Elohim is plural El is singular But what we can't understand is that While the noun is, is, is plural The verb is singular So they're acting as a unit uh, For example Take the word family There's more than one within the family But you say the family is going on a vacation Because they are one in that sense. But it doesn't mean that the, the boy is the same as the uh, father, the father is the same as the son. It's just that this is a truth that's revealed to us that I myself must admit to you, I can't fully comprehend how it can be. But that's what makes the mystery something that I can accept because God is infinite. Uh, so w- what I'm saying to you is that while we read in the Old Testament that God says, uh, beside me there's none other. Remember that in the Old Testament, you've got a problem where you've got the polytheism. You've got all these idol gods. And God is avoiding, trying to avoid Israel going in that same direction, having all these these, these gods. And and that is why he keeps emphasizing this one God. But he progressively reveals that there's the spirit. There's also a son. What that means in its fullness is displayed in the New Testament, where we begin to understand the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of the son. And we discover that they're all persons. We discover that they have... Um, they have attributes, like the Father has attributes. Not only that, we discover that Jesus Christ is worship, that we are told to pray in his name. I mean, you you check the Old Testament, for example, uh, there's only one person to be worshiped, that is God. So how can the New Testament approve the worship of Jesus Christ and uh, and, and not contradict the Old Testament? And that's where this great mystery of the Godhead is unfolded, and uh, but that is basically what I've been trying to teach and trying to explain the, the, what the Trinity is all about. Now I suspect you. Uh, I'm putting my mouth here, and if I'm incorrect, you can you can uh, correct me, please. But I would suspect that you're probably. Um, I, ho- I hope you're not a JW, because you probably are a JW. And if you're a JW, would never you, you what you can't understand with your mind, uh, you find it difficult. To comprehend that and I agree with you but it's not what you comprehend with your mind it's what God has revealed that is important and that's where we have a problem with the Jehovah's Witness the Iranian uh, heresy heresy is not something new the Jehovah's Witness teaching is not something new it goes back to the 3rd century and that was rejected rejected in the 3rd century uh, but again, it all comes from the idea that they can't understand, they can't comprehend. So what happens, they say that the, if we say that Jesus is God, they're saying that we're saying that Jesus is the Father. That's not what we're saying. We're saying He's of the same nature, the same essence of what God is. Whatever makes God the Father God is what makes Jesus God. The same. It's like I have a human nature and you have a human nature. It doesn't mean that you are my, you're, you're me or I'm you. It's just that we share the same nature. And that's what we teach when we talk about the, the Trinity. I don't know if that helps and I don't know if that confuses you, but um, it is one of those things that we is revealed in Scripture. I can show you where the Son is called God, where the Holy Spirit is. As I can show you seven different places where Jesus Christ is described as God. Uh, now he cannot be a little God because there's no other God, formed or formed after. So you can't see a, a lesser God than 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 God the Father. Otherwise you have a a demi God. You don't have a God, and then you end up in more confusion now. So I don't know um, if I've been able to answer your question satisfactorily.
2: Well, um, Pastor, I, I must truly say that um, not fully, because Jesus Christ, the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is fulfillment of the Godhead, which means no. whatever attribute goes to the Father also goes to Jesus. Okay. Jesus is a spirit. The word is the spirit. John six sixty three clarifies that the word is spirit. Jesus is the word. So, what I understand clearly. L-
1: let that me stop you. God. God, yeah, could I stop God it? can come down. Yeah. Can I stop you there one minute? What, can I stop you one minute there?
2: Yes, sir.
1: In, in John chapter six, uh, that's where you refer that the word is spirit. There, that that is not 63. referring to. That, that's not referring to Jesus. There, if you read the text right, you said my word. That I speak to you is spirit. Well, yes, but that not referring to Jesus. No, you read it carefully. He himself is speaking and saying, "My word is spirit." He himself is is speaking. Yeah, his word. His word. The word that he. Yeah, because it is spiritual food, like you talk about. The Bible is spiritual food. That's what he's saying, because those Jews are getting. uh, Jews are very very literal. And um, for example, he told them, "Unless you eat my drink, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you know, uh, you can't enter the kingdom." They took that very literally, but what he's talking about is the the word he speaks uh, is what they need to partake of, and spiritually they need to eat the word. Uh, he's not talking something literally; he's speaking very, and he's saying that he's the manna that came down, the same way the manna came down and kept them alive physically. He is the spiritual manner that they now need to feed on. So that they can live spiritually. That's what he's teaching.
2: Yes, but pastor, remember that Jesus said, "The spirit, the spirit is the word; the word is the spirit." He said, "My Father is in me, uh, and
1: I am in Him." Right. So how could you separate them? Oh, well, oh I, I, what I'm saying to you is that we, when you study the Bible, uh, you'll see that the. Three distinct persons. Now, a person—you know what personality? To have personality, you need three things, right? You have to have emotion, you have to have intellect, you have to have will. If you are, per, if you have intellect, you have will, and you have emotions, that is what constitute a person. When you study the the person of Jesus Christ, he has intellect, he has will, and he has. Um, emotions You tell the Holy Spirit You find the Holy Spirit Has intellect He has will He has emotions So you're dealing with Three different persons You're not, you're not dealing You're not saying The Bible doesn't teach That Jesus is the same As the Father In other words the, In terms of identity That's called modalism That is something That was rejected By the church as well Something called Sabellianism uh, Monarchianism Those are terms That I'm using But you know uh, Those are theological terms But basically Those are things That were rejected By the church uh, so so you have people today who believe that the father uh assumed the form, the, the the form of the son and the father assumed the form of the the spirit that is modalism.
2: That's, that's, that's what the word said pastor <laughs> the word said it clearly even jesus said god sorry god said he came down He came down in the flesh Uh to redeem man back to himself. Yes. God.
1: Yes. God God became flesh in the person of his son. He sent his son, and his son took. That's why the Bible says uh, the greater the the mystery of godliness, God was revealed in the flesh. So So Jesus. How
2: could we separate
1: them? Well, when we talk about separate them, uh, I'm not too sure what you mean by that. Are you saying that the Father. you're saying God is plural. Well, no, I, I am saying there's one God, but within the God, the essence of God, whatever makes God, God, the, the nature of God, there are three distinct persons that the Bible reveals. You've well, got yes, the Son.
2: You must remember that human logic uh. cannot compare with divine logic.
1: Yeah, but we agree with that. We agree with that. We, we don't dispute that. But all, we, all we're suggesting to you and what we believe the Bible teaches is that the Bible explains that within the Godhead there are three distinct persons. That's what we, we teach. So the, the spirit uh, you come to you come to uh the, the take the um, you take the baptismal formula or you take the when our Lord was baptized, you have the Father speaking from heaven, you have the Son on earth, and you have the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove. You got three distinct entities there. Right. Yes, but
2: the Son said he does not He does not do anything of
1: himself. Correct, because when he came to planet Earth to redeem humankind, he came as a man. He lived as a man dependent upon God, like a man was dependent upon God, because Adam had sinned, and he had to take the role of Adam. Uh, He had to uh, fulfill the law on our behalf, because he had to be... The same way man sinned, uh, he is the one that fulfilled the law for us. So when he was on planet Earth, he had to live in submission to the Father.
2: Yes, but remember, again, you see the scriptures is so clear all around, uh-huh. because it says also that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ
1: uh-huh.
2: in the flesh, uh-huh. you see he came in the flesh right. to show us who the Father is in character, co- because co- no one can see God in in the spirit Yeah,
1: we don't have a disputable that We agree with that That when he came well,
2: He can go from spirit To, to, to humanity From humanity He showed it in the scriptures too he, he left humanity And goes back He said back in the spirit yeah, Jesus well, Christ
1: Yes, I agree with that But that's the point That's why redemption That's why he needed to redeem us He had to come to redeem us Somebody had to die Because man committed sin
2: Well, he's God himself God himself came down in the flesh
1: correct in the person of his son he sent his son
2: he he had to be in the son because no one can see him in the spirit so he has to come in the flesh Mm -hmm. that's why jesus told his disciples when they asked him to show him show them the father Mm -hmm. what did he say
1: yeah because he is manifesting the nature of the father and the attributes of the father and he demonstrated (laughs) what god is like nobody disputes that but the point is that Jesus and the Father are two distinct persons. That's that's the point we're trying to make that within the Godhead, there are three entities that share the same attributes as as God the Father. That's the biblical teaching. That's what the Trinity is all about. The Trinity doesn't teach there are three gods, the Trinity teaches one God, one nature, but there are three persons, separate interpreters within the Godhead. Yeah, How you that. Gonna take,
2: you know? cannot take one away. And said the other two is God. All three has to be
1: God. Pastor. We agree. We, we agree with that. We teach that.
2: We teach All that. three. So then, how are you going to take one and say the other two is God? Cannot be. All three has to be the one God.
1: But we said that. We. That's what we teach. That's what the Trinity teaches.
2: Yeah, but you're still separating them as a plural.
1: We separate them only for theological purpose, so that people understand that the Spirit. And the son and the father are distinct entities But they are one God That is the point that we make It's like a family If I might use the term uh, Or uh, an, well, you might use an executive office Where you've got an got a, a office of director But you've got two or three directors Within the, the, the company, basically this is, this is what the Bible teaches There's nothing we can explain Other than what the Bible gives you there That there's one God that in this God There are three expressions Of God the Father, God the Son And God the Holy Spirit uh, And that's the biblical teaching We just see that when you look at the Father You look at the Son and the Holy Spirit And you begin to examine the biblical teaching You see that they all three of them are called God All of them have the attributes of God And all of them uh, uh, do works That only God can do So we, we know there's one God There's no question about that But that's why we believe in the Trinity uh, that the Bible teaches the Trinity, and that's a very unique Christian doctrine, by the way. Um, that, it, it, that there's such thing called the Trinity. Are you at JW, by the way?
2: No, 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 sir.
1: Okay, okay, I wasn't too sure. Yeah, don't, don't, I hope we haven't confused you. I'm not saying You're that. I'm not I, too I, sure. I can tell you
2: who I am. I am a Seventh-day Adventist.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but we, we, t- we believe the Trinity, uh, and we believe that.
2: Well, we believe in the Trinity, too. But there is only one God. Yeah, we God teach. Can, he can go in any form he pleases, and go in any place. He chooses.
1: Yeah. We believe that. We we believe there's one God, but that God expresses himself the the three Entities within the Godhead. Oh,
2: yeah, because we cannot see Him in the spirit, so that's why He came in the person of His Son. Right. So well, that's why Jesus Christ said to Thomas, uh, "You mean you're with Me all this time, and you do not know who the Father is? Right, I am He."
1: Right. Right. He
2: so, is in Me, and I am in He. Him. Yeah, we we, we so, believe
1: we, we believe that we don't dispute that, but we're.
2: So, tr- is, so there is so no plurality there then.
1: Well, there's a, there's a plurality in the sense that there are three entities within the Godhead. One
0: well, that's the human logic. Well, it's in the Scripture. It's the, the Bible. human ex- logic.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, I don't think we're going to... I mean, I don't know how, how you interpret your your uh, view of the Trinity. Well, I
2: interpret it as one God.
1: Yeah, we interpret it as one God as well. But and
2: God came down in the flesh to show us yeah. His character.
1: Yeah.
2: We cannot see Him in the... Spirit, therefore he came in the
1: flesh. Yeah, but it's not only for his character he came down. He came to redeem us.
2: Yes, I I, I agree. I agree. I agree. That's why he came down in the flesh.
1: But what we're trying to avoid, what we're trying to avoid and people need to be very careful uh, to uh, to make the identity of Jesus as the same as the Father and that the Spirit is the same as the Son that is not the biblical teaching. That's what we're trying to get away from. That is called modalism, and, and that is not something the church. That's something that's been rejected uh, since the fourth century. So,
2: so you're saying that the spirit is not the word;
1: the son is the word.
2: Well, the son is the word. Yeah. Yes, so he's the spirit too. Yeah. But John six sixty three tells you that the word is spirit.
1: Yes, but again if you read John six sixty three and read the passage again, you see the word that he speaks there, his word is spirit. It doesn't say that it's not referring to Jesus Christ in his person as spirit. No, that's how you took it. No, but you can read it there yourself. Read it again and, and uh see if you uh if you see there's any difference there. Read the context, read what comes before and read what after. you see that when he said the word is spirit, there's referring to his word, what he was saying, what he was teaching. Uh it has nothing to do with his word.
2: All right, Pastor I, Um I, I understand um I understand this far, and I pray that God will share us the truth and let us um yeah. accept the truth even before He comes, because if we do not accept him as who he says he is, yeah, well, time gone with us
1: yeah, but I want to let you know I that believe who he is yeah, I want he you to know that God we God believe we believe anything? in we, i want he to know we believe anything? in one God, but that 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 within the Godhead there's Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we just want it and they're not. They're not identical in the fact that the Father changes into the Son and then changes into the Holy Spirit. That's not what so we believe.
2: What did he What did he
1: mean when he explained that to Thomas? Well, he's saying to Thomas, like he's saying to all of us, when you see me, you'll see God the Father. Words, if you could see God the Father, you'll see me. Words, my character and my attributes display what God is like. It is because he
2: came in the person, because we cannot see God in the spirit.
1: Right. But that's
2: why he came in person, yeah. in the word. Yeah. the word. The word became flesh.
1: Yeah. It's like if I had a son that looked identical like me, okay? But he wasn't me. And I sent him down and I said, if you see him, you see me. That's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. But not the, you can't, if you go into modalism, you've actually gone into heresy. And modalism really is where God the Father transformed into the Son and then transformed into the Holy Spirit. And they're, three dis- and they're, they're, they're just one in the sense that they're not distinct. That is called modalism. And that is something that was rejected years ago, uh, centuries ago.
2: Didn't you read in the scripture that Jesus Christ, he left human the human form and go back
1: in the spirit of course because it was only a human body he assumed and he went okay, back
2: well, that's what we say all the time
1: Yeah. once he's completed his work he returned to heaven sat down at the right hand of God the Father alright pastor ok sir thank you for calling I, I appreciate thank that thank you
2: for, for your <laughs> description and your, your explanation ok and I hope that God will uh, continue to lead
1: us. And thanks for calling. We, I appreciate Jesus that. Comes. Thank you. Yeah. God bless.
0: Thank you very much for listening from St. Kitts. Thank you for your call, and thank you for staying wow. on the line for so long. We appreciate it, and we trust that, as you said, that God's Word will be what leads us and guides us. Uh, I know we've discussed the Trinity to some degree in previous episodes. I don't know if we've ever done one specifically about the Trinity, but if you... One uh, more information, we'd, uh, you could look up uh, previous episodes of That's Truth. You could just go to Google and type in That's Truth Podcast. And I know we discussed it when we discussed the Jehovah's Witness movement. Uh, and that would be episode 41 and episode 42. And they are both titled Jehovah's Witness. Uh, The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.13. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Thank you to those of you who have already sent in questions. We have, Pastor, I have a whole page of questions in front of me. Uh, I hope we can get to them all tonight. If you don't hear, if you sent in your question tonight and you don't hear it right away, there's a number of questions that have already come in before your question. So stay tuned. Don't think that we have ignored your question. Every question that comes in, we ask it. Uh, Pastor, I believe uh, we had finished talking about Joel chapter two, and now we've talked about whether there's plurality within the Godhead. Uh we have a WhatsApp question the what question that came in from a listener uh it says I am saddened by the fact let me first did you have anything else you want to say about okay, the Trinity no. okay I am saddened by the fact that some fundamental Baptist churches are installing pastors instead of seeking God their argument is that God that the Bible doesn't give a clear indication of how to select a pastor I know that couldn't be true because the Bible outlines the qualifications of a pastor. Dr. Murphy, could you please shed some more light on this matter? Well, look,
1: I uh, let me just say this. the Bible lays down principles. It doesn't give specific uh, methodologies by which we do certain things. And when it comes to the calling of pastors, uh, there's no definitive uh, s- um, method that is given say this is how you do it. Basically, you've got to extract principles from the Bible that guides you when it comes to selecting pastors. Um, to take the question that um, p- um, churches are, are calling pastors without um, what's it what's it what term that they installing use? installing pastors without seeking, seeking God. God, that's a mistake. Uh, I think every church that is in the pursuit of a pastor who's uh, for whatever reason, whether the pastor has died or resigned or it's a new church has started, certainly they should be. A time of prayer and intercession, where the people are seeking the mind of God to find out who uh, is best able to fill the vacancy that might exist. So, um, I would—I don't know of any church that would go ahead and install a person or call a person without going to a time of prayer and perhaps even fasting. I think that's a given that time is spent uh, praying for a pastor. Meanwhile. Um, one of the things that's normally done within the church, and normally it's part of the constitution as well, they will tell you exactly how to go about establishing getting a pastor. And there's something called a, a public committee that's generally formed by the church. So the church is looking for a pastor, the general membership and the, everybody's praying that the Lord would lead them to a particular person who is, uh, should be the pastor. But meanwhile, they, they, they check a, uh, select a committee made up of godly men uh, within the congregation help them uh, help pursue uh, to seek a pastor Um, you remember in Acts chapter 6 when they were looking for deacons um, what they did is that they looked for men who had certain qualifications and they listed the qualifications and they brought the men before the church and say you choose out of these um, who you want and they chose seven That's an illustration of of what uh, the biblical way of doing it. In other words, after uh, prayer and getting a a committee together who begins to pursue the pastor, uh, these committees, by the way, normally would speak to other pastors who might know that they're vacancies. uh, Pastors who are looking for the pastorate might know people in Bible school, etc., etc., who are going to leave Bible school. Uh, Also, there may be some pastors who are willing, uh, in the position of changing ministries for some reason, uh, hasn't worked out where they are, and they're looking for a new ministry. This enables the public committee to be in contact with a variety of people who uh, they think might be suitably qualified. The other thing that you do, the committee uh, will call those people in and examine them uh, on the basis of biblical qualifications, because you've got First Timothy chapter three, you also got uh, Titus chapter. Ch- chapter one and two that's out the qualifications of, a, of a, a pastor. So, in the interview, those things will be brought up. Um, they'll also try to assess his character, find out about references uh, that he can give. Standard procedure of of trying to uh, cull information that will enable you to make a, a, be- a, a reasonable, godly decision. So, you've done the interview. You've looked at the qualifications. And if you you the, the committee evaluates well, it's just the kind of person you judge the personality as well. Find out what they did before, experience, et cetera, et cetera. Standard procedure, but then you must bring those people to the church and give the church an exposure to maybe preaching for two Sundays uh, to get an idea: can these people, uh, can this uh, person preach? Can this person handle the Word of God adequately? And um, but the ultimate decision is with the church. Uh, The public committee can only recommend uh, a person to the ministry, but the church has to vote that person in. And and so you you allow the church, they've been praying, they've been fasting, they've asked the public committee, they've done all the groundwork that is needed to try to uh, select a person who they think is suitable. That person presents the Word and preaches the Word. People are able to question them and ask them a variety of issues uh, that they may have concerns. And then after the preaching, um the church has to vote. Uh the church vote and again it should be in your constitution. It normally requires two thirds of membership to uh select a person. Um that is the standard way that is, is done and not because there's any biblical model to say, well you must have a public committee, but uh taking certain principles that you need to select a person you need the bible gives you qualifications you should be able to use those qualifications as a basis to decide if a person is a suitable candidate or not and then you're dealing with the people in the church they ought to hear the man that man preach and and believe that he's able to handle the word adequately and they should be able to ask him questions maybe about his family about his conversion about his training all of those issues should be brought up once the church is satisfied that this person is a suitable candidate the church votes, and two-thirds would bring the person into the ministry. That is the standard way of, of, of dealing with these matters. But the idea of selecting somebody uh, without uh, prayer and seeking God's will and um, examining them accor- against the biblical qualifications, bringing them to the church, the, the church here in encourage, church allowed to ask questions, that would certainly be, um, in my judgment, contrary to the norms of dealing with these matters. But these are things that should be done.
0: Pastor, a follow-up or a continuation of that question from the listener. Uh, It says, Pastors should be humble servants, not tyrants. Several times I've listened to a particular pastor, and he verbally slaughtered his members from the pulpit, stating that they are vindictive and cursed.
1: Well, I am surprised you still the pastor because most people, if a pastor made those kind of statements, I think, if I had made those kind of statements in my church, I'm not too sure, in our church, I don't, I'm not too sure if I'd be still there. I mean, those are strong, strong expressions to tell people that they are vindictive and cursed. Uh, I, I don't know how a pastor would be able to minister to the people who who makes if he makes those kind of statements. I think you turn everybody off. Mm. No, it doesn't mean that pastors don't uh, say things they shouldn't say. We all we all know that James makes it clear that every man offends in word. But um, to to use that kind of tone and to target uh, deliberately is, is simply something a pastor should not be doing. If there is such a pastor like this, I'm uh, surprised that he's still. In the pulpit ministry However let me say this To balance the picture I'm a pastor And there are people Who would probably think I come into the pulpit Sometimes to target them I've never once entered the pulpit To target anybody And the reason why I think it's important To do that is Because when you're Doing the scriptures The best thing to do Is to preach Expository preacher go right to a book of the bible because you'll come to issues that you have to deal with and as you deal with it you deal with the issue as it comes up in the bible so that nobody's thinking you just when you're a topical preacher now you're selecting topics And depending on the person that they're there, they're going to believe, this is this topic for me. That's the problem with topical preaching. But expository preaching, nobody can say when you come to deal with adultery or fornication or um, um, your mind and uh, swearing and cursing. or uh, You just name the topic as it begins to deal with that or covetousness or dealing with money. Nobody can say when you have the past. So I would say that... um, if the pastor is, is, is this um, vindictive and is using this kind of terms, these are pejorative terms, I think, that could lead him uh, where he no longer has a congregation. He's, they may be there in body, but they're not listening to him. Uh, it might be necessary for him to make a necessary apology and um, uh, take back some of the words he've said. And there's nothing that... He's not demean when he says, Look, I'm really sorry I said something I shouldn't say. It takes a man to make an apology. And people understand that we all make mistakes, and if there's appropriate apology, people should be willing to forgive. But to maintain that uh, spirit and uh, keep calling people vindictive and cursed, um, he's il- he would alienate the, the congregation, and pretty much he'd be preaching, but nobody would be listening, and he's no longer functional as a, as a person who's effective, And so therefore, either he should consider leaving, or the church should consider getting somebody else. But it's, it's not right and proper for him to be making those kind of statements. He's wrong to make those kind of statements. A uh,
0: little bit more of their question or comment. In addition, members cannot confront him. They've become the victim. He has a clique that would attack you if you dare oppose the pastor. He makes the decisions without consulting members. He is easily offended as well.
1: Yeah, Let me make a reference to that. Now, I'm not sure what you mean, but can't confront him. That 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 term in itself... Uh, is a a loaded term. Uh, uh, Confront him how? Uh, Confront him personally, where you can meet with him and talk with him, or confront him publicly, where you're trying to uh, tear him down publicly. Now, if you're tearing him down publicly, that's wrong, absolutely wrong. If you're talking about saying, Pastor, can I have a word with you and can I meet with you and we can discuss matters, that should be something he's willing to do. So I'm not too sure what you mean by confronting. If you mean that he's not prepared to listen to anybody, whether in private or whatever, now you got a problem. You've got a real, real problem because that's not what he should be. The other thing that needs to be um, borne in mind, in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, um, Paul says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. It has to do how you approach the pastor. Um, so. You've got to be very, very careful when you're dealing with your pastor. You're dealing with your father. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't confront your father in a belligerent way. Uh, you would be thoughtful that he's older than you are. He's in a position of authority. And while you might want to say, Dad, you did something wrong, whatever it is, it, it, your tone of voice and the way you deal with him um, would, det- would determine whether he responds to you or he listens to you. And, and when it comes to pastor, it's a similar thing. You ought to show respect to whom respect is due. You don't go to teacher and be belligerent with a, a teacher. Um, if you're in school, uh, you 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 deal with that person appropriately the way the approach. So the approach is important. And then in First Timothy chapter five verse nineteen, it says, "Receive not the accusation against an elder except by two or three uh, witnesses." So again, um, if this is something that you have experienced or something somebody has told you, we're going to be very very careful in the past you have to need two or three witnesses before you take any particular accusation against him. But uh, a pastor should be willing to listen, like everybody else. And if anybody came to me personally, no matter who, and said, listen, pastor, we need to talk, um, I, I don't have a problem dealing with that. Uh, and, and, but I think a pastor should be humble enough uh, to realize that he's not the embodiment of perfection. He makes mistakes. There's maybe something he said or done that some people should be able to to, to say some things uh, to him. So I do feel that uh, confronting uh, is, 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 a, is a loaded term. But if you mean that I, I, I can't, nobody can talk to him, now that's a different issue altogether. So I would say to you um, that um, as a pastor, he should be open to people talking to him, even if he has to be rebuked in, in private. But be very, very careful when it comes to a public thing as well. Uh, cliques, you mentioned. Um, I suppose in every church, a pastor has people who like him. Those are, that You might perceive that to be a clique, and the people who... Um, not too fond of him. Every church has got those two, 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 two uh, poles. So I am not too sure. That, but to say that um, they defend him, everything he does, and they attack you if you oppose him, well, that's another issue altogether because they need to be very objective as well. You can support the pastor and still maintain objectivity. And I would say to you that a lot depends on... Um, what a pastor does, uh, if he's going something contrary to scripture, that's a big issue. If he's not going against something that's contrary to scripture, he's being called to lead the church. I am uh, of the opinion that just like in a home where you got a mother or father or in a marriage where you got a husband and a wife, you will have different opinion on things that are to be done and how it's to be done. The final authority in the home is the husband. The final authority um uh, in the church, as far as these matters are concerned, should be the pastor. Uh, but if he's doing something contrary contra- to the Scripture, then I think uh, that need to be dealt with. Let me just say this. Uh, while a pastor is the final authority when it comes to non-biblical issues, I-, I-, I believe a pastor's job is to persuade people. In other words, in our church, I... I- Others would have to uh, probably say otherwise, but I try as much as possible. If I believe in something that needs to be done, uh, I try to bring it to the church to get a vote on it. I try to persuade people in a certain direction, but it goes to a vote. If the church votes no, it is no. If The church votes yes, it is yes. I don't. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't try to. While I might feel something needs to be done. Uh, I I always try to bring it to the church and then get their decision on it and get a fight. Because if I don't have people falling in the direction I'm going, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leading anybody. So that's why it's important for me to have the church vote and approve something uh, that I feel should be done. Uh, uh, and uh, I try to persuade them in that direction. So. I hope that answers that that, that question. What's the other part of it?
0: One final part of their question is another question. Should churches have youth Sundays and should unsaved youth be part of it? A very good question. I've heard that discussed before, and so I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Pastor.
1: Before I deal with that, Nathan, I I, I want to just make a few other comments about the the pastor part of it as well. Um, I'd like to say that one of the things that would help people deal with these matters is the Constitution. A church should have a constitution, and uh, a church should hold a pastor to the constitution. If you don't do that, you could end up in tyranny where he can do anything he wants, and that's why you must have a constitution. Um, So the constitution is there. uh, You hold the pastor on it, but also to scripture. And then in most churches in the constitution, there's a job description of the pastor, what he's supposed to do. Those are things that you should hold the pastor uh, again, And then, you, as I mentioned, you've got the congregational vote. And then there should be a the a matter of open discussions where matters that are of uh, importance should be dealt with uh, by all the church. There's a section in there that talks about uh, he doesn't allow anything brought to the church. Uh, Nathan, read that section. Um, t- 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 I I got
0: rid of the question. I oh, was, <laughs> I was okay. sorry.
1: But there was a part there where he does everything and doesn't bring matters to the church. Uh, oh
0: he makes decisions without consulting members right
1: right he, uh, right right that that is a fatal mistake fatal mistake uh, a, a church calls a pastor and the Constitution guides the 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 interaction between the pastor and the church now, if you are calling a pastor and he uh, um, he must agree to the constitution if he doesn 't agree to the Constitution, I would recommend that you don 't call him to the pastor okay. Uh, and, and there's a reason for that, because, again, you must have some guidelines where you can control and put checks and balances on the pastor as well as on the church. So for him to be making decisions without consulting the pastor is a massive mistake, and it'll backfire eventually, because you have to have people. We're not Lone Rangers in the ministry, okay? Uh, I've often said that even Lone Ranger needed a, a tonto. We We need somebody... Uh, we need to have people who are willing to, to uh, follow us and to work with us. And that's where uh, the importance of bringing matters to the church and having an open discussion on matters. Now, there might be heated debates on the matter and discussions on the matter. That's to be expected because if people care about something, you're going to have emotions once in a while. But the important thing is that. Everything is mentioned, all the matters, the whole issue discussed, it comes before the church. And then ultimately it's the church that makes that final decision. He needs the backing of the church for whatever program or plan he has. If he doesn't have the backing of the church, it is, it is folly for him to proceed with something and the church is not behind it. Because he's called to lead. If he finds that it, the church doesn't, is not ready for this thing, put it on hold. Doesn't mean he can't bring it back again and say, you know, look, we discussed it two years ago, and I didn't think he didn't seem ready for it. But I want to discuss it with you again. His job is to persuade. But if the church is not for it, I would strongly recommend that he desists from whatever adventure he has or whatever program he has until he get the people in line with that. Try to persuade and use the pulpit to persuade. Uh, you know, use the Bible to to show them exactly what the Bible teaches them the matter. But um doing things without consulting the, the, the members is is poor leadership, very poor leadership and eventually it would lead to a distancing between the pastor and the people and um eventually probably some kind of resignation at some point in time.
0: Pastor, we have lots and lots of questions that are coming in. They're coming in at twice the rate that we're able to answer them. Uh the time across the Eastern Caribbean is eight thirty two Uh, Should churches have youth Sundays, and should unsaved youth be a part of it?
1: That's a very, very good question, to be very honest with you. Um, Let me just say this, that youth ministry is a modern invention, okay? This is not something that you find in the New Testament or you find in the Old Testament. So let's, let's face it on, on the outset that this is something that the church has created as a church organization, as it were, to, to meet a specific group, which is the youth. That's the first thing we need to understand. So we don't have any guidelines in the Bible specific in relation to youth ministry. Uh, that you must have a youth pastor, you must have a song leader, you must have a worship leader, or you must have uh, this kind of program. It's not there. Okay, so let's be very, very clear that whatever guidelines we establish for youth ministry, there, there's no specificity in the Old, in the New Testament or Old Testament that gives you guidelines that this is how it must be run. That's the first thing I would like to say. Um, this The question, I would answer that question, it depends. It depends. Uh if you have unsafe people that are invited to the youth, you've got your friends, uh, they invite their friends and they're unsafe, uh, what do you mean involved? Uh, I, I see nothing wrong with them helping setting up the props or perhaps even cleaning the for a program or rearranging chairs. Or I see them not probably being part of a hike where you include the safe and the unsafe or even having a, a camp I see nothing wrong in inviting the unsaved to be part of the camp, or if you have a car wash for the youth, uh, for some thing they're going to do, and the person is not a Christian, and he wants to be, he's coming to the youth, he wants to help with that. I see nothing wrong with that. I, I also, I'm not too sure. That I see anything wrong with him playing the role of a villain in a story. Uh, you know, I really don't can't say see anything wrong with that, but I do feel that we need to make distinctions. Between the save and the unsaved in regard to certain things in the youth program. For example, giving a testimony or singing. What in the world is an unsaved person getting up uh, singing in the church and singing a Christian song? What, what, what's the purpose of that? Who does it glorify? Um, offering. Again, I am not too sure that I would be advise a person to, to, to let them be involved in that part. That's a worship. Worship is part of, offering is part of worship. Scripture reading. I'm not sure that that would be the proper role of a person who is in the youth ministry who is not who uh, part of it. And then what about um, religious poetry or uh, being part of the choir? Uh, I have issues with those kind of things. I really think those should be reserved for Christians within the, the church. And it's a good thing for the person who is not a Christian to understand that you say to him, well, I want to be part of this, to explain to him, listen, this is service to God. This is worship to God. Uh, you yourself know that you're not a believer You're not a Christian And uh, we don't see how you can render, render service to to God And especially in God's house Which is consecrated for God's service And I think that distinction Need to be made so he can understand The difference between him who's not saved And the believer who's not That doesn't mean that we don't respect his humanity Or respect the fact that he has value or dignity That's not what we're talking about We're trying to make a subtle distinction So he, he can differentiate between what's a Christian And what is not a non-Christian What you about?
0: You're listening to that Truth. Pastor, do you have anything else you want to mention?
1: Well, the other thing is, Nathan, is that the church is a call-out assembly. So there is a clear distinction in the Bible between the saved and the unsaved. And then there's a biblical doctrine of biblical separation that we should separate from uh, people in the world. So and the other thing I would like to say, uh, Nathan, is the consensus of the church. Um, It's very important to to be sensitive to how the church feels on these matters. If a church feels that uh, clearly the unsafe person should not be involved in these programs, it would be downright wrong for a youth pastor or a pastor to say, I don't care what you think. Yeah. You know, uh, you need to be sensitive to the people. Uh, they've been there long before you. They have been taught, perhaps, by another pastor before you. You've got to respect the fact that the certain principles they were taught that you ought to to respect in that regard. And until you can persuade them otherwise, I would recommend that you stay within the, if it's not unbiblical, of course, uh, stay within the parameters that the church has set for you and try to operate within that. And meanwhile, if you think that something needs to change, do biblical teaching and preaching to to begin to change attitude and and change thinking. But I do think it's important for the unsafe person himself that they understand there's a distinction between the believer doing something for God and he trying to do something for God. I think it's important to draw that distinction.
0: Pastor, we have a listener who has sent in a video, a listener from St. Kitts Nevis, sent in a video of an apostle or prophetess uh, from Barbados by the name of Margaret Breedy Haynes, and I'm going to share just a couple little snippets of the video, uh, and then have you comment your thoughts from a biblical worldview. I'm going to start out with some of her predictions here.
3: The Caribbean island is ab- Caribbean islands is about to receive a mighty shake of earthquake. The dust sweeping through the Caribbean Islands, that's a sign. It's a sign. So God, come on, make this go viral.
0: Make so this I'm going to skip ahead to another section here. Just want to give you kind of a flavor of what she's saying so that you have a better idea. Send
3: an 8.2 earthquake. I've been warning Barbados about this for a long time. For more than 10 years, I speak to this nation about what is to come. Barbados is going to come out of one epidemic, one epidemic into a greater disaster.
0: And I've got one final segment that I want to play for you here. Again, this is audio from a video that was sent in by a listener and wanting to get Pastor Murphy's thoughts and I know that a lot of these videos are going around on social media and on WhatsApp and so this is a good. I appreciate the listener sending this in.
3: This is what I want to say to you. You saw the Sahara dust touching every the Sahara dust touching every mostly all caribbean countries well the sahara dust is going to come with locusts they brought along the locusts because there shall be locusts swimming over the caribbean and one of the largest earthquake ever to touch the caribbean is about to put the Caribbean on its wheel.
0: And the video goes on for about 10 minutes, but that gives a flavor.
1: Pastor, what are your thoughts on this video and this
0: apostle?
1: Well, um, number one, she lacks specificity. And what I mean by that is she's making a lot of broad pre- predictions about earthquakes and about... Um, uh, she's let, talked about uh, hurricanes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. She even mentioned that um, she was prophesying for ten years in connection with Puerto Rico. I know she said ten years Barbados as well, that's, uh, that a hurricane would hit Puerto Rico. You know we're living in the hurricane belt. Okay, I keep telling people that. I can I can say for five years that the, a big hurricane is going to hit Antigua and a bigger is going to hit Antigua because we're living in the hurricane belt. I mean that is that is a given. We're also living in a, a volcanic and a earthquake um, lane, so we know that sooner or later we're going to get either some volcano or some some volcanic eruption or something. So that is a given. That's not a prediction. Uh, If she can actually say that on the 12th of May in 2021... Uh, Barbados would have an 8.2 earthquake. Now, if that were to happen and it would actually happen, now you can talk about she being predictive in this matter, but these are all vague statements she's making. Anybody can say in the Caribbean that we can get a hurricane, that we can get a, a earthquake because it's going to happen eventually. We all know that because we're in the belt. Now, you what
0: other? about the fact she talks, I didn't get a chance yeah. to play it, but she talks. She says that the Caribbean's going to become cold, we're going to yeah. lose our tourism we, we, and it's going we, to
1: that. We're coming to that. The other thing that she said that the uh, the the Af- the dust from Africa uh, is a sign. This is something that happens regularly in the Caribbean That the, because of the wind cycles that we bring dust. So this is not something that is any sign. This is something that's been going on for a long period of time. She also mentioned that the dust will bring locusts. Now, which Caribbean country you know that has reported that the African dust has brought locusts? None. None. So she is really a false prophet, okay? Um, the other thing that she talked about is that the Barbados... Uh, Dominica, Haiti, Jamaica—they'll all experience snow. Okay, and that we we'll lose our tourism industry because the the American tourists and the people from Canada, etc., would no longer become because coming, they won't, they won't come to a cold country. So we expect now that there's going to be a, some kind of a tilt of the the axis of the, the the globe, so that now that we we can have snow down here as opposed to having sun. So we're going to have a complete revolution, uh, um, global revolution, in terms of the, the weather patterns, so that we'll now have snow traveling in it. That's totally bogus, okay? Anybody believes that uh, it's only when it happens, uh, if it happens, basically. But that everybody knows that for that to happen, you have to have a tilt of the, the axis of the of the earth, uh so she would not be around when that happens. Uh, I'll be dead and she'd be dead if that were to ever happen in, in the future. The um the other thing that she talks about um is that she is a prophet and she is also an apostle. There are no apostles today. I don't know why in the world uh people are buying into this concept that they're apostles. You you read and there are no prophets today either. Okay, prophets in the sense that they prophesy in the future. If you talk prophets in the sense that they declare the word, because in the Old Testament, a prophet... John the Baptist, for example, was a prophet. He never gave any prophecy, and he's the greatest prophet ever, but he spoke to the countries, and he spoke to the the people of his day about the Messiah, et etc. et cetera. So if you mean prophet in the sense that you're preacher, okay, but we talk a prophet who... Uh, as given uh, um, prophecy about the future. And they're not like that. And they're no apostles. Read uh, Ephesians. And it says that the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation for the church. The foundation has been lift, laid. And now you've got the pastors, the evangelists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and teachers. Uh, so this is something that um, um, I, I do And by the way, she seemed to have a, a growing international ministry. And I am puzzled how in the world a person uh, of this caliber... Uh, could have that kind of a a global ministry. But again, it is a condition in the times in which we live that people have itching ears, they lack discernment, they no longer have a biblical base of what they believe, and they are so gullible uh, that they no longer allow Scripture to speak to them in in these kind of matters. The other thing about about this matter, uh, about her, one of the things that I noticed, I listened to the tape very carefully, is that I didn't like the smirk on her face and the snicker Uh, Here you are predicting that the Caribbean is going to go through the most devastating experience and loss of life, I suppose, and loss of industry. And you are smirking and laughing and smiling at the same time. And I'm saying to my woman, you can't be serious, all right? Listen to the video. Anybody that gets the video, see it. You don't be laughing. You'll be crying and mourning and and, and be burdened. Like Jeremiah. Like Jeremiah. But there's, there's there's no semblance here of any sobriety. Any any sober sense that judgment is so, uh, and the the loss of life and and limb and uh, the complete disruption of everybody's life. I mean that's a that's why Jeremiah said my eyes became like a fountain of tears. You you're burning, but I don't get that uh, coming from her. And as I mentioned before, she's too vague and she lacks specificity and she doesn't give any kind of dates, etc. And the, the thing that I find that. Uh, I found offensive as well as when she said at the end that what she said is the word of Jehovah God, the word of God. So she's saying the word. This is what she's saying is the word of God. I mean, to my mind, I be I be terrified to make a statement like that okay. because you are you are saying that God is sanctioning what you're saying, and then people believe that, and then it doesn't. For example, take take them out of the uh, the locusts. Everybody knows that the the African thing, they bring in the in locusts, but yet you're saying this is the word of God. And uh, this is the word of Jehovah. So I um, I do not see her as a prophet. Uh, I think she's misleading uh, the public. Uh, but like any other person, she has a right to say what she needs to say. But I wish that people would use more discernment and use the word of God as a standard to make judgment on these matters. So I, I don't um, r- recognize her as a prophet. I don't think she has prophetic authority. And uh, I think people be misled by her her teaching.
0: Thank you to the individual who sent that video in, give us a good opportunity to, as Pastor just admonished us, to practice discernment, not only in what we watch, but in what we might pass along. But thank you again for sending that to us. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Trinidad. Is tongues that is spoken today in various churches of God or of the devil? In my personal opinion, I find it devilish. Correct me if
1: I am wrong. Look, all I would say in connection with tongues is that there specifics given in the Bible, especially in Corinthians chapter 14. If there's a legitimate use of tongues uh, in the Word, you're given specific procedures by which this must operate. Number one, two or three at one time must be allowed to 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 speak. Uh, There must be an interpreter. Okay. Now, if you find what we find in our churches there that those principles are violated. Now remember this, the Word of God is the product of the Holy Spirit. It's the inspired Word of God. The Holy Spirit of God is the one that um, uh, gave man the Word. Okay, um, So if the Holy Spirit has given us the Word and the Holy Spirit has specified, uh, and also, by the way, it mentioned that the gifts of the Spirit He gives the gifts as well. He gives the direction how the gifts to be used. What we have in churches today is a complete violation of what the Bible teaches. And I cannot sanction what is going on uh, in the churches today in in terms of speaking of tongues because it completely violates the principles of Scripture. Here's another thing. If you compare Acts chapter 2 with what is going on in the churches today, It was a language that people understood, uh, a foreign language. Today, when you have in tongues, it's not a language that is uh, a human language. People who have done linguistics and who have actually listened to what these people are saying have said there's no recognized human language that this aligns with. So it is not in in line with what we have in Acts chapter 2. It's not a human language, okay? So I would say to you, I, I I do not see any purpose of it either. Why would we in the Caribbean need to speak in tongues? Everybody understand each other. Read Paul's teaching in, in the Corinthians 12 to 14. Paul says in one case, I'd rather speak, I think, a dozen words than a thousand words, or I forgot how many words, in a language that nobody can understand. Because the important thing is that uh, the Scripture, listen, I emphasize this, and I keep saying, the Bible is about truth, the Bible is about truth. It's not about emotion. It's about truth. Truth appeals to the mind, the understanding. And that's why even when the use of tongues were permitted, unless there was an interpreter to explain what was the, the, the language, it was halted in the church, and Paul said, let that person not speak in the church. Because if it is of any assistance, it's to inform the mind with the truth of God so there can be transformation in, in a person's life But just saying words And not knowing what they were It doesn't benefit anybody It doesn't edify any, And that's Paul's argument in Corinthians How we became enamored With this distraction I am not too sure But part of it, Nathan Has to do with the fact that The charismatic movement Emphasized that the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues. Yeah. And that's where the problem comes in. So people believe that because they don't speak in tongues, they're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. But if you read Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says we are all baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit baptized the believer into the body and makes him part of the church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at regeneration when the Spirit comes to live in the believer and they place in the body of Christ. It's just... The problem that Pentecostals have, if I may speak uh, this without offending those who might be listening, they're not given to be uh, Bible scholars, and and they're not very strong on doctrine. Even they themselves will probably admit that. Uh, And that's part of the problem. They're more lean towards emotion. Uh, and, and I think that is the, the weakness of the, of the movement. That does not say that everybody in the Pentecostal movement like this, but that's a general trend. And therefore, they're no longer guided so much as by scripture, as they're guided by the emotion and experience. Well, we judge experience and emotion by the Bible. That's the standard. And if emotion and experience goes contrary to the Bible, we throw experience and emotion because the Bible is the standard. That's how we, within the Baptist circle, Judge these matters.
0: If you would like more information on the tongues movement, Pastor did three episodes on the tongues movement. Uh, You can Google That's Truth Podcast and look for Episode 20, Episode 21, and Episode 22. They are entitled Tongues, Tongues and the Charismatic Movement, Tongues in Acts Chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians Chapter 14. And that'll give you three episodes worth of detailed discussion on the Tongues Movement. Pastor, it's interesting that you mentioned emotional uh, religion, because their second question is, why are some Christians religious, why are some Christian religions so emotional? They cry through worship services. Is this biblical?
1: Well, I have nothing, uh, I I see nothing wrong with emotion. Uh, We are emotional beings. But it's the control of emotions we need to be very careful about. For example, I think when a person finally sees truth, truth should move us emotionally. You ever been in a church yet and you probably had a passage you read a dozen times and then suddenly somebody preaches on it. And for the first time in your life, you really see it. It's like it's like lightning just hit you and your whole spirit, your whole heart just wants to explode. I think that is, you ought to write, say hallelujah whatever it is. But the idea of of playing up to people's emotion, and this is where music is the danger here within a lot of these churches, right? Uh, The pastor's sermon begins to go dead, and then they start to music to stir the emotion. (laughs) No, I'm serious. It happens again and again and again. The interest begins to wane, and then it's the utilization of music to stir people's emotion. And I have said this, uh, that it is offensive and uh, vulgar, in my term, for a person to bypass your mind to go directly to your emotions. If a pastor is known for playing with your emotions and bypassing your mind and not preaching truth to your mind, he's actually taking advantage of you, and you ought to be aware of that. A pastor can move people, but you move them by presenting the truth so that people comprehend the truth. And once you comprehend the truth, you see the glory of the truth, and that should create spiritual uh, excitement within a person. But uh, there are some people as well, Nathan, that are naturally criers. They cry about everything. I mean, uh, they've. <laughs> and I must say this this is more true of women than it is of men. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these uh, churches that have uh, got all this emotion going on, it's the women that's directing this whole thing. I've been in churches here in Antigua, and I've seen who was dancing. I'm seeing that the husband is standing up straight. And he's just listening, and up here. but the wife is going going crazy. She is, she is her, she's moving her body. She's moving her hands, She's moving her head. She's doing everything. And I'm saying to myself, but what what the difference between a man and a woman? And a lot of these churches, the, the, the women really the emotional um, power in those churches. And let's face it, too. There are more women in churches these days, and sometimes they way of wielding their powers, and the, the pastors find it difficult to say to them, you know, you need to control this, this aspect of your life. But I, I just think that um, a lot of pastors play up to people's emotion. I think the music is part of that. Uh, for me, um, I personally think that the Bible is about truth, the whole Christian faith is about truth. And uh, the, the mind is stirred by truth, which then appeals to the, moves the emotions. And I think that's the way that God designed it and the way it should be in the church.
0: This listener from Trinidad that sent in this question uh, had a couple of other questions, but you answered them uh, without even knowing them and how you were talking about uh, preachers. Uh, should they uh, rely just on emotions uh, when preaching? But they have a question here that you didn't answer directly uh-huh. yet. When someone is evoked emotionally to accept Jesus as their Savior, are they truly saved? And that's a good question. That's
1: the danger we have today. Look, I've seen people uh, use tear-jerking stories at the end of a sermon. And I, you know, I think it's possible if you want to pull somebody down the aisle, you can do that. If you can arouse their emotions and play on their feelings. But that's the danger. That's not your job. That's not my job. My job is to present the truth to that person. Explain the truth to that person, allow the Holy Spirit to take that truth and apply it to their mind and move them to conversion. My job is not to convert my God my job is to present the message and let the Holy Spirit do it. I must not play God in people's lives, and I think a lot of people, a lot of pastors are responsible and uh for doing this and they mean well by the way, they mean well because the Bible says compel them to come in but there's a there's a a point where you have to allow the Holy Spirit to work look most of us when we're dealing with somebody, we know if the Holy Spirit has been dealing with that person and when I'm dealing with people uh, in the area of conversion and i and I sense that th- this person doesn't really have an interest uh you know they're not paying attention uh I am not going to call and, and say to, you know to make a decision I, I say to that person, look you think about what I've said, pray about it." And uh, you talk to God about it. But I do feel that pastors and other Christians who move people emotionally and is not a genuine work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, make that person twice the child of hell and will be held accountable for that person making a decision that is not real and authentic. And by the way, that's why when people make decisions of this type, they go on for a while and then they discover the Christian life to them is nothing and they fall away and and go back. So we need to be very, very careful to know when the Spirit of God is dealing with a person and give the Spirit time to work in that person's life and not try to force right people into the kingdom because uh, they're not actually converted. And it's like, uh, I remember reading about Dwight L. Moody some years ago, somebody uh, pointed out to Moody, a person who had made a decision uh, at his one of his meetings, and they said, "You know uh Mr. Moody, what about this person because the person had gone back and lived as uh, a devil that's the, you know how can I? Moody said that was my convert in other words, he's admitting that you know the person's gone back that's not a genuine situation. I'm the one responsible for that person, and I think a lot of people are responsible a lot of passes because they want to get people down the aisle, they want to count numbers, and by the way, some of these denominations." It depends on how many rep- how many people you report got made decisions, uh, how many got baptized. This is tied into everything. Their benefits, tied into their income, tied into everything. And they, they're always trying to get people down the aisle, get, get people baptized, because everything about their successes hinges on those kind of things.
0: Pastor, in the last two minutes of the program, uh, we have questions we're not able to get to. If you send in a question and you haven't heard it answered tonight, Uh, Please tune in next week and we will answer it. But, Pastor, one final question in the last minute coming from Facebook. Is there any difference between praying and talking to God? And what's your stand in women being a pastor? My son has a problem with a woman being a pastor.
1: Well, for sure. I answered the last question much easier. Uh, I think we did a program on that some time ago. Uh, A woman is not called to be a pastor. Uh, The Bible is very, very explicitly clear that God does not give a woman the authority. Uh, to to rule over man, does not give the authority uh, to teach biblical doctrine. Uh, Paul himself teaches that in the book of Timothy. And it has nothing to do with the fact that she may not be qualified in terms of have a good brain, have a good mind. But the Bible tells us as well that uh, the order of creation, God has put limits on what a woman can do in the home as well as what a woman should be in the church. But I think we dealt with that before in another program. The other question was, uh, quickly? The difference between praying and talking to God? Well, I'm not sure there's any real difference between prayer and talking to God, because prayer is actually talking to God. But uh, prayer is more, I suspect, a time when you set aside some time uh, to devote more time to God and give uh, some um, real special attention. Uh, Talking to God is when you're driving your car, I suspect, or when you're walking the road in your garden, both for prayer, because you're praying to God, But I think one is more solemn in the sense that you dedicate more time to him. And that's more private.
0: Thank you very much for tuning into That's Truth tonight. Again, I have half a page of questions still here in front of me. So if you didn't hear your question answered, please tune in next week for the next episode of That's Truth. And Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't happen before then, we will answer your questions. We look forward to having you join us next week. God bless and have a good night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth.